I mean, one of the myths about memory is that we're supposed to remember everything and we really forget a lot of things and that's okay. And part of my job as a neuropsychologist is sort of normalizing those typical memory lapses that we all have. In some ways, the brain is still the wild west of medicine. We are constantly learning about it, and neuropsychologists are uncovering new facts about how it works. There's so many myths and misinformation that persist in our culture, even today, about the brain. Stay tuned for our next episode as we separate fact from myth and share practical tips what you can start doing today to strengthen your brain for the future. This is Seniority Authority. Seniority Authority exists to answer your questions on aging. The world has changed dramatically in a generation with more retirees than ever before, living longer, with more choices. If you're an older adult or have an older adult in your life, where do you go to begin to understand those choices? I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey, with over a decade of work experience in retirement communities. I can track down the right people to answer your questions. So send your questions on aging to me, and together, let's get smarter about growing older. Thanks to our show sponsor, The Riverwoods Group. Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. Now, let's hear from today's guest. Welcome to Seniority Authority. My name is Kathleen Toomey, and I'm your host. And I'm so excited about today's podcast, because how often do you get the chance to sit down and talk with a neuropsychologist about how to strengthen your brain? Dr. John Randolph translates scientific findings into layman's terms beautifully, and you will all be able to walk away from this episode with some very practical things you can do to strengthen your brain. And it's probably not what you'd expect. Dr. John Randolph is a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, brain health coach, and adjunct faculty member at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth College. Dr. Randolph is the author of the brand new book, The Brain Health Book, Using the Power of Neuroscience to Improve Your Life. You can order it on Amazon or through his website, www.engagebrain.com. I enjoyed most about his book, is how clearly he explains the science behind brain development, as well as the specific suggestions he outlines in each chapter called the Brass Tacks, where you can write in your own development plan. Dr. Randolph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. We have worked together before, but not since the publication of this book, which I really admire because it is so easy to grasp and to understand. Well, thank you. That was definitely my goal. So good to have that feedback. I understand a labor of love for you. Very much so. 
Uh, just just love translating all of this jargony science uh, so that the average person who's interested in the topic can understand it. That's fantastic. And it's exactly in line with what our mission is here at Seniority Authority is to help people understand what's true and actionable in their life and what is myth. And I love how you started the book with some of the most significant myths that we believe about our brain. They rang true for me, and I'd like to share five of them here, and you can tell me if they are accurate. So if you are listening, pay attention and see if this makes sense to you. Significant memory loss is a natural part of aging. True or false? Well, definitely false. And it's something that a lot of people do believe that as we get older, we start to experience perhaps some subtle changes with memory and maybe some word finding difficulties in conversation. But these are actually very normal and don't necessarily reflect anything overly problematic, maybe embarrassing or irritating, a little frustrating, certainly, but uh, not necessarily anything that represents impending cognitive difficulties. You know, what's interesting is that we see that there really are relatively few people who develop more severe cognitive problems like dementia until quite a bit later in the aging process. And even as we get into our 90s, it's not until we get pretty far into that decade that the majority of folks will have significant cognitive problems. So it's really not something that most of us will experience, unfortunately. And we also know that there are some people who age exceptionally well. It's this group uh, who are sort of whimsically called the super agers, mm -hmm. uh, folks who are in their 80s who have remarkable memory skills for their age. Their brains look like they're about 30 years younger. And so there are certainly examples of successful cognitive aging out there. But coming back to that myth, definitely a myth. Yes, significant uh, memory problems are not necessarily part of aging. That's great to hear. Now, the next myth is that our lifestyle in our middle years doesn't really have an impact on memory. Another big myth, you know, some people like to think about their, let's say, midlife activities and engagement as maybe not being terribly relevant to how they're going to be doing later in life. But this is uh, concerning because what we do in midlife actually plots on to our thinking skills 20 or 30 years later. We see this particularly as related to exercise and mental activity, that when people are very physically fit and physically engaged in their, let's say, 30s, 40s, and 50s, that predicts how their brain will be looking and how their brain will be working as uh, they get into their 70s, 80s, and beyond. Something similar is the case with mental activity. So midlife is actually a great time to start becoming more active if you're not active already, because it really does have some implications for how you're going to be doing down the road. I think that's exciting because it says that we can do things now that will positively impact our brain later on, which is wonderful. Absolutely. Another myth. Forgetting something that you recently learned is a sign of dementia. True or false? Definitely false. Please say false. Yeah. <laughs> of us who uh, forget where our keys are or, you know, go into a room and forget why we walked in there. Hopefully the answer is false on that. Absolutely. And we've all certainly been there. 
I mean, one of the myths about memory is that we're supposed to remember everything and we really forget a lot of things and that's okay. And part of my job as a neuropsychologist is sort of normalizing those typical memory lapses that we all have. I like to ask folks, you know, do you remember what you had for dinner four nights ago? That would take me a little time to figure out what it was. You know, most people um, don't really store that information in memory. And so when you start digging a little deeper, there really are lots of things that we don't hold on to, and that's okay. So those little lapses from time to time, again, for the most part, totally normal. Great. Another myth, the brain stops growing as we age. True or false? So fortunately false. And it's interesting if we went back to the 1950s or 60s and asked, you know, well-known neuropsychologists or neurologists at that time, the same question, they would say, oh, well, that's true. The brain does stop growing. If it changes, it's only in a negative direction. We only lose brain cells. We don't gain new ones. But now we know that really is false, that the brain is capable of a tremendous amount of what we call plasticity, which means that the brain changes in response to experience and activities in day-to-day life. And that this is actually the case across the entire lifespan, even into our 80s and beyond. So fortunately, the brain really continues to adapt and mold and sort of rewire itself all the way throughout life. And I think that's why it's so exciting to be able to read a new book like yours, get the most current information, because as we uncover and learn more about the brain, our knowledge of it changes. So that's exciting that it is not a finite number of brain cells that you can actually grow your brain as you get older. And that also pairs with another popular myth that once your memory starts to go, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And another myth that's yeah important to point out, I'm glad you bring that up too. We know that even when people have started to experience either subtle age-related cognitive changes or more significant changes, even dementia, such as dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, if people, let's say, become more physically active, we can actually experience some mild gains with our memory and other thinking skills. So across the entire what we could call spectrum of thinking skills from normal to um, having more significant problems, there is definitely room for improvement when we become more engaged in activities. So that's a very optimistic finding that you really see across the research that you know, we really can show improvements in a lot of different ways. That's very, very encouraging. And the final myth that you refer to in your book is medications for memory are very effective. True or false? Yeah. You know, unfortunately false. You know, it'd be great if there was sort of a, you know, a magic bullet that was the medication that would solve all of our memory problems as we get older, if we experience them, if there was a medication that uh, would prevent or mitigate the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. There are a few medications that are available that do a little bit They might keep people out of assisted living or a nursing home setting for perhaps a short period of time, but unfortunately, they don't do what we'd like them to do. But on the other hand, we know that there are lots of things we can do today and tomorrow that actually do make a lot of difference for brain health, according to the science. And we've hit on a few of those, and we'll continue to to chat more, but this would include things like exercise, being socially engaged, being more mentally active. 
these are the kinds of things that we really see differences in uh, brain activity and brain functioning uh, when we engage in them. And I think that's a great jumping off point for our, our next topic. So in going through these myths, I think it's important to understand that the big headline is our brain can grow and we can strengthen our brain as we get older. That basic forgetting one thing or another is not the sign of more significant problem, but also that we don't have a silver bullet in medicine at this point. We have medicine that will help the onset of Alzheimer's or dementia for a little period of time, but nothing that is going to completely eradicate it. So it all comes together to say that there are things we can do now in our lives to help strengthen our brain that are not medication. And that's what I'd like to spend a little bit of time working on because you and I know that statistically, people fear memory loss more than death. And they fear it, but they also don't necessarily seek out information. And what I'm hoping that this episode will do is provide people with some very practical science-based suggestions they can do now in their lives to help their brain. So you mentioned exercise earlier. Can you talk a little bit about exercise, it means different things to different people. And how much exercise do you need to do to have a positive effect on your brain? I mean, do we all have to train for the Ironman and give up our jobs and and mountain climb? What level of exercise has a discernible difference to our brain health? Great questions. Let me sort of unpack those a little bit. So First off, as far as exercise and the brain, you know, if your listeners are looking for one thing that they can do that is really great for brain health, this would be it. There's been an enormous amount of research in this area. It's really exploded in the last decade or so. And we see that people who are more physically active have better looking brains, better working brains. Their thinking skills tend to be stronger. They're at a much lower risk of developing dementia. We see that we can actually grow new brain cells, what we call neurogenesis, so growing new neurons in uh, the brain, particularly in an area called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is this memory-critical center of the brain that we really need to help us learn and remember new information. And so if you look at a group of people who are fairly sedentary, maybe not exercising very much, and have them engage in an exercise program over even a six-month period, you can see that at the end of that six-month period, they have grown new brain cells. They've also uh, shown improvement in some cognitive skills, too. So there are so many reasons why exercise really is a a great brain health strategy. Now, in terms of the amount of time we should exercise, yeah, you're right. We don't need to train for an Ironman um, necessarily, unless you're into that kind of thing. That's great. (laughs) But we can sort of look at a couple different standards here. One would be the standard from the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, the CDC, and the American Heart Association. Basically, they have the same standard, which is about 30 minutes a day, roughly five days a week. And they also recommend a couple days of some sort of resistance training. You don't have to pump it up like a bodybuilder, but doing, you know, some sort of uh, resistance. And that's a great general standard for health, um, certainly applies to brain health as well. 
But when you look at the neuroscience research, you see that you can probably get away with even a little bit less than that, maybe 20, 30 minutes of exercise per day. And moderate exercise is usually what folks think about. And moderate exercise would be something like a brisk walk, going hiking, swimming, dancing would count, skiing. You know, there are lots of different activities people can engage in. You know, some of these have been looked at in the research, um, not all. But ultimately, doing something where you're able to maintain a conversation with someone, but you're noticing that your heart rate is up a bit, that's kind of a sweet spot for moderate exercise and for brain health. Now, I have never heard that term, and uh, but I love that, that you were talking about having a good-looking brain. Now, <laughs> there's another thing I have to worry about. <laughs> I never worried about whether my brain was good-looking or not, but anyway. I think that's a great suggestion. So it's following either the CDC guidelines, which is 30 minutes, elevated heart rate five days a week, and just push yourself. And as we all know, it gets harder as we get older to exercise, but the benefits that you reap, if you can grow new brain cells by engaging in walking and some resistance training, which is, you know, a little bit of weight lifting. I do know that we understand that if you have never been to a gym and this is the first time weightlifting, you can also build bone density by doing weightlifting. So a little bit of resistance training, a little bit of brisk activity will yield a bigger brain. Yep. You wouldn't want to do that. Right, exactly. Sign me up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One thing to add to that is that there's this really interesting relationship between exercise and the brain that we call a dose response relationship. And, you know, one way you can think about this is if your doctor prescribes you a medication at, say, five milligrams and then decides that maybe bumping up to 10 milligrams makes sense, that dose will lead to a different response. That higher dose will maybe do a little bit more. It's similar with exercise that let's say you're able to maybe do a brisk walk five to 10 minutes a day. That's good. We don't want to discourage that. Any activity is good for the body and for the brain. But if you're able to bump that up five or 10 more minutes, that's even better for the brain. A little more might work even even more in terms of uh, growing the brain and improving your thinking skills. So there's this certain um, you know, effect of more and more exercise tends to do more and more good things for the brain. That's great to know. And so maybe you get a friend and you set a goal and you work at it for four weeks or six weeks and you master it and then you set a new goal because that can also very practically, it can be easier to work out with someone else than do it all on your own. Yes, that's a great point, Kathleen. I, I think that, you know, having an exercise buddy is a great way to stay accountable to somebody when building in an exercise habit. You know, when we think about New Year's resolutions, the most common one is, well, I'm going to exercise more. And then by the time February, March rolls around, eh, usually those uh, kind of are gone and forgotten. But if you do have some strategies like exercising with somebody else, it certainly makes it a lot easier to become a more enduring habit. And that also leads to a second recommendation that you have in your book about socialization, that socialization can actually help build your brain strength. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? 
Yeah. You know, this is something that's a little bit less intuitive. We haven't necessarily heard this in popular media that being socially active is good for the brain. I mean, fundamentally, we're social creatures. We really like to be around each other. It's, you know, an essential aspect of being human, but it also is really good for brain health. And we find that when people are more socially active, they tend to manage stress better, their immune system works better. They tend to have fewer medical problems, but also their brains tend to work better. People who are are more frequently active, people who have a larger social network tend to also have a lower risk of developing dementia. So there really are a lot of benefits to being social. Right now, of course, it's a tough time. We're isolated. You know, because of the pandemic, we need to be careful how close we get to others and so on. And that's been a, you know, pretty stressful experience for pretty much everybody on the planet, to be fair. But even in this uh, sort of challenging time, finding ways to connect in different ways remains very important. I think that's fascinating. And I agree that not many people, I think many people understand, okay, exercise is going to help. Certainly my heart, my lungs, and now my brain. But socialization is something that we haven't heard. We've heard a lot of brain games and buy this and do this, but socializing. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of socialization that's needed? And does this mean that if you're single or if you're aging alone, that you are at greater risk? What do you mean if you could talk a little bit more about socialization and what level of socialization leads to better brain health? Yeah. So I like to think of socialization in three key categories. One is how frequently social you are, how often you see people. At this point, maybe it's through Zoom or, a, you know, sort of a, an outdoor meetup somehow, but how often you're seeing other people in your life that you care about. The second is how large your social network is. And we usually think about a social network as the people that you interact with in one form or another over the course of a month. So it's not necessarily somebody that you see every day, but at least once a month, somebody that you're interacting with. And this could be through texting or email, not necessarily face-to-face, but somebody that's in that broader network. And then we can also think about social support as another very important aspect of socialization. You know, some people might have a a smaller social network, but if that's a very rich, you know, very sort of emotionally nourishing network, that's great for social support. And that certainly matters so much, of course, for our emotional health and quality of life, but also in terms of boosting brain health. So all three of those aspects of socialization, the frequency, the social network size, and social support have been found to correlate with better brain health and better thinking skills. Um, So all of them are, are very important. You mentioned the piece of, you know, isolation, maybe somebody who's single right now. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, you know, a very challenging time to you know, build social relationships. We're just trying to maintain whatever we can, you know, right. restrictions we have. But on the one hand, we know that social isolation is really pretty negative for the brain. When we're more isolated, we tend to generate more stress hormones, uh, including cortisol. And really? Yeah. Believe it or not, cortisol is something that, that does sort of get ramped up when we feel more isolated. And that is actually toxic to the brain. So we do want to try to avoid, you know, being isolated if we can. You know, even being single and reaching out for a Zoom call or a FaceTime call with a friend, 
um, a phone call, some email exchanges, doing anything certainly counts. So there are people who, um, yeah, may be single, may be feeling a little isolated, even moving a little bit in the direction of becoming more social can be very helpful for so many things. And that's good to know, because that was one of my other questions is during this pandemic where we can't get together like we normally do, is there a, a differentiator between having a Zoom call or a FaceTime call versus being on an online social media platform? And would you have any point of view or research about what it's like to interact live over technology versus interacting on a social media platform that is not kind of face-to-face? Yeah, I think that the science is pretty young in this area. But just based on the sorts of things we do see, I think the closest you can get to -to face-to-face interaction, the better. So right now that comes in the form of Zoom calls and FaceTime calls. And that I think is pretty good. You know, when we think about face-to-face interaction, if we have that as kind of the gold standard, we can think about, you know, reading other people's body language, listening to what they're saying with the words and thinking about our responses. We have to attend to information. We have to learn and integrate that material and come out with a response fairly quickly. So there are some processing speed demands. There's really a lot going on when we're actually interacting with someone face-to-face. And a pretty good amount of that does happen in, uh, let's say, uh, a Zoom call. It's not exactly the same, but it's, it's fairly close. Then if you take a step back to, let's say, a telephone call, well, you're not really getting the, you know, kind of nonverbal body language piece, but you're certainly, you know, engaging emotionally, you're engaging in good conversation, hopefully. And so that's also something that is still pretty important. If we take another step back to text messaging or email or, you know, something on Facebook, Again, it still is a connection. It's, you know, you're still removing um, some of the the important aspects of interaction, but it's something. And so I think at this point, the best thing we can do is just sort of do what we can to stay connected in any of those forms. All of those forms are good, but the closer we can get to -to face-to-face, the better. That's great advice. And that's really important for people to hear right now that socialization, and I love how you refer to the processing skills. The processing skills when you are face-to-face and you're reading and interpreting and you're doing all of this in milliseconds so you can respond, that's an important way to engage your brain. So the more we can socialize and the more we push ourselves to socialize, the healthier it will be for us, especially those of us who are still in isolation. So strive to do that. Make those Zoom calls, make the Zoom cocktail party, have the phone calls, but reach out. Don't be isolated. You know, sometimes people ask me, you know, I'm sort of introverted. Yes. Uh, does that mean that I should become an extrovert? And no, the answer is no. If, you know, you're inherently a little bit more comfortable doing things on your own, that's great. There have been um, some really good studies and some books written about the value of introversion in our society. But it does mean that trying to find ways to get what I like to call call a social dose from time to time is good. You know, maybe it's a 10-minute conversation with a friend or family member um, every day or two. 
even at that level for someone who's uh, more introverted, that's great. That's something. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to change your core personality tendencies, just that uh, trying to prioritize social interaction every day at some level is a good thing. I think that's really good. Thank you for bringing that up, the introvert's dilemma. I don't want to change who I am. I've also read that just your day-to-day interactions, like you may see the same person when you're buying a cup of coffee, you may smile at somebody who's on the elevator, just these very low level, low investment social interactions can help you. It doesn't have to be a deeply engaged connection that even those smaller exchanges with the you know, neighbor across the street or the mailman, those contribute something as well. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Article you might be talking about, or one of them, I came across one fairly recently. It was talking about what they called weak social ties, which doesn't mean bad social ties, just less robust social ties. And absolutely, there seems to be great evidence that, you know, if we live in a community where we know the person at the post office behind the counter and have a nice rapport with that person, we know the person at the coffee shop, they know our name, we know theirs. These aren't people that we're spending lots of time with, but having those sort of lighter connections seems to be yeah, very, very good for overall quality of life and emotional health. And in turn, I, I would argue brain health. So I think that's important. You can have many different kinds of levels of friendship and connection in your life that all help just cultivate them. The last thing I want to touch on in terms of the lifestyle changes that you can make to help your brain health, and this is, I have to say, this is barely tapping into Dr. Randolph's book. I mean, barely tapping into it. So, but the other surprising thing is we talk about what lifestyle changes you can make now to increase your brain health. The third thing is not buying an online brain game. The third thing is sleep. Mm. So these are none of these, by the way, good news and bad news, none of these things can be purchased, but all of them are available to you if you want to start changing your life right now to increase your brain. Can you talk about how sleep is connected to brain health? Sure. You know, sleep is one of those things that it's sometimes easy for us to say, well, I'll I'll catch up on sleep on the weekend or, well, I'm, you know, I've got a big work project or I've got a young child. And of course, sometimes we can't avoid losing sleep. It's just sort of the way, uh, you know, the way things go. But we do know that when we are able to sleep in that magic zone of about seven to eight hours a night, our brains tend to work a lot better. If we sleep less than that, what's called short sleeping, or sleep even more than that, what's called long sleeping, about nine hours or more, both sort of directions can actually be problematic for our thinking skills like attention and processing speed, sometimes with memory as well. Let's say one night, but we're talking, you know, multiple nights where we're really not sleeping well, that can very quickly add up and cause some problems with brain health. One of the reasons that people have proposed is that in the sort of sleep process, there's this sort of uh, activity that happens in the brain where the brain has this kind of garbage disposal that basically gets rid of the kind of biological waste and buildup from the day. And part of that sort of garbage that gets thrown out is this uh, substance that's called beta amyloid. 
And beta amyloid has been known for many years to be linked to Alzheimer's disease. So when we get a lot of sleep, we're able to actually clear that potentially toxic substance out of the brain. When we're not sleeping well chronically over the course of time, um, that can build up. And we do know that sleep problems or insomnia, that can actually um, set us up uh, at a higher risk of developing dementia. So definitely something we, we need to take seriously in terms of you know, maintaining good, good sleep hygiene and good health. So if someone is a chronic poor sleeper, would you recommend that they strive to fix that in order to help their brain health and try to shoot for seven to eight hours? Absolutely. Whenever that's possible, you know, it's certainly an essential aspect of maintaining brain health. So, you know, it's sometimes easier said than done. Sometimes folks have sleep apnea, which can be treated uh, using uh, one of the, the breathing masks, like the CPAP mask at night can help um, with sort of giving people continuous oxygen. And that's not just good for the sleep process, but also good for the brain. Um, in a condition like sleep apnea, we actually lose oxygen at times uh, within the brain. And so we certainly want to prevent that. But, you know, more generally, we can think of certain habits that we can all engage in to improve our, our sleep, health, and hygiene. That would include having, for example, a consistent time when you go to sleep and a consistent time when you wake up. And for some people, this might be going to sleep at 11 and getting up at 6.30 or 7. And, you know, that can shift. But the more those sort of sleep and wake times are consistent and we develop that sort of a habit, the more our body can predict when we're supposed to be sort of winding down to go to sleep and when we will wake up. We also certainly want to think about nutrition, um, what we're putting in our body that could interfere with sleep. Caffeine is, is the biggest culprit. So anybody that's a coffee drinker knows there's a certain line where you got to be careful. And oh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there, I'm sure. Obviously in coffee, but sometimes hides in unlikely places like chocolate, caffeine and soda sometimes can be enough to keep people awake at night. Even spicy or fatty foods can affect sleep for some people. So just being mindful of the things that we do put in our bodies. Also, you know, having a way of relaxing uh, at the end of the day and trying to unplug, you know, getting away from screens, um, the blue light from screens can really interfere with our circadian rhythm and not allow us to get to sleep when we want to. But, a, you know, routine like reading a book, taking a bath or a shower, doing some breathing techniques to sort of calm us down a bit. Um, those are the, the kinds of behavioral strategies that sometimes can make quite a bit of difference. That's great advice. So try to have the similar wake up and going to sleep times, refrain from screens, refrain from caffeine before bed, and try to do something that's more peaceful and relaxing. And know that I would say the myth is that you can't catch up on a week's night. You can't make up for a week of bad sleep with one long weekend sleep. Correct. Correct. And unfortunately, sometimes people get into that mindset that, well, I, I don't have to worry about it over the week. I'll, I'll catch up on the weekend. That can actually exacerbate you know, negative effects of sleep deprivation over time. So the more it can stay pretty consistent, even through the weekend, uh, the better. Well, that is fantastic. It's so encouraging 
to me that we can make lifestyle changes now that will help us grow new brain cells. For anyone who wants to learn more, I would encourage you to get Dr. Randolph's book, The Brain Health Book, What Using the Power of Neuroscience to Improve Your Life. It's available on Amazon and on his website, Engage Brain. We have just tapped the surface of uh, this topic, but I love how practical and actionable your recommendations have been. I'm going to encourage any of our listeners, if you have more questions for Dr. Randolph, please log on to senioritiauthority.org and post those questions and we can maybe convince him to come back. So thank you so much, Dr. Randolph. Is there anything before we end, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd want to share with our listeners? Well, first off, it's it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I guess one last thought would be that, you know, we've talked about how brain health in large part is under our control. You know, there are things that we can't control like our genes, but there are many things about brain health that we really do have control over. And we've talked about a few of those here. There certainly are some others, but I really like that idea um, in my own personal life as I talk with folks I work with, that there are definitely are things that we all can do that are free or inexpensive and available to all of us that really can help our brains work better. Well, you've been extremely encouraging and I love your attitude. And I'm so pleased we're able to share this with more people. Sounds Thank good. you. Thank, thank you, you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. That's our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please visit our website, senioritiauthority.org to submit questions for future shows. And maybe we can have Dr. Randolph back again, spread the word, visit us on Facebook and subscribe on your favorite podcast site. A final thanks to our show sponsor, the Riverwoods Group, home to Riverwoods Exeter, Riverwoods Manchester, and Riverwoods Durham, all in New Hampshire. We are the largest family of nonprofit continuing care retirement communities in northern New England. Discover where independent adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. And until next time, enjoy your opportunity to grow older and get smarter about growing older. Thank you. Thanks to our show sponsor, the Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. That's our show for today. Did it spark a question? If so, send us your questions at senioritiauthority.org and we'll track down the answer. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe, like us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, let's get smarter about growing older.